They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo Talk boy. to music. What's up, good people? It's your boy, Craig Seymour. You know me. I'm the author of Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Um, the memoir, All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. The novel, Who's Your Daddy? And a forthcoming biography of Janet Jackson. Now, I know some of y'all been waiting on that for years. Look, it's done. But I thought I ended with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and I just felt like that was getting a little stale. Plus, you know, there's all that we've been going through um, with the COVID and stuff and the pandemic, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I just felt like, you know, it needed a little something to end it up up with that felt a little more current so i'm gonna see miss jackson at essence in july um if anybody else is going please hit me up say hi you know how it is um and i'm gonna end that way so i really appreciate your patience um now the topic of the day is ms tina marie who i've loved ever since i was 10 years old and first heard i'm a sucker for your love premiere on wkys in my hometown the most chocolatest of cities well, at least back then, <laughs> things have changed, things unchanged, um, Washington, D.C. And my guest, who I think is the first guest I've ever had on the good old Craig's Pop Life podcast, but excuse me if I'm wrong, but I think so, um, is the singer-songwriter slash music lover slash great writer, Tim Dillinger. And now me and Tim, we've been Twitter pals for a minute now, um, you know, really connecting because he knows so much about like soul music and gospel and stuff like that and those are my musical homes you know that's where i um the sort of the foundation of my aesthetic um and i really connected to his writing when he started his substack newsletter god's music is my life and he wrote about tremaine hawkins fall down spirit of love um it, the piece is called new time religion the holy ghost falls down in the club now i cannot overstate how important this record was to me personally and also to many other black gay men who many of whom were cast out of the churches that they were raised in because of their sexuality and you know as black gay men we brought this spiritual yearning to the safe place of safe space safe place i guess same difference of the club um where we made the rules and you know the godfather of house um mr frankie knuckles who i was privileged enough to hear play many many times once said that the club was like a church for the children fallen from grace and fall down was so important because it was an actual gospel singer doing a record for the club so it just felt so good it felt like an acknowledgement like we were being seen and um tim details the making of this record and the personal and professional impact it had on miss hawkins and this is just the type of reporting that um is very typical for influential rocket rock songs you know we probably know the behind the scenes making of every little beatles song every little rolling stone song what have you 
but it's very rare for club music. It's very rare for black music. Um, so I found that piece. Um, I loved it. And I've been turned on to so much gospel and contemporary Christian, unfortunately, a lot of it unavailable for streaming through his newsletter. I highly um, recommend that you um, subscribe. He's going to talk about that a little bit later. And um, one artist that Tim and I often discuss on Twitter is Tina Marie. And for some reason, which I can't even remember now, um, in the last month or so, we had both been revisiting Tina's later later albums, um, Passion Play, Black Rain, the good old LaDanya, um, Sapphire, Congo Square, and of course, of course, her posthumous release, Beautiful. And, you know, he told me he was working on something on Tina, you know, and I was like, okay, cool, cool, whatever. But when I read it, I was blown away. Um, by what he wrote about Tina. I mean, his essay speaks to all of the issues of race, spirituality, and culture that are so central to her music. So I wanted to talk with Tim about it, and I thought it would, you know, might as well just do a good special podcast episode with him and let everybody listen in on our combo. And um, I didn't want to have the podcast and then have people send people running to the essay because I thought that was kind of um, bass backwards. So I asked Tim to read the piece so that we could all be on the same page. Um, so here's Tim reading his um, Tina Marie Remembrance and our conversation. But first, I do need to say, I know I talked too fast during the interview. I just got so caught up in the moment. Y'all just had gone, had to excuse me. I'll try to do better next time. But, um, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> anyway, here's let's go. Um, come on, Tim. I've never been the kind of listener who enjoys music as something that simply plays in the background. In my experience, music has always been a central, always present element essential to my own evolution. As a child growing up in St. Petersburg, Florida, I was raised in the church with little exposure to what they called secular music. I spent the first 15 years of my life learning about my spirit through gospel music, but I had not learned about how my spirit and body connected. We were taught that our flesh was wicked and that our sensual desires were representative of the sin embedded in the flesh. Church rhetoric told us to kill our flesh, a stark and deeply disturbing way of articulating the struggle between the body and the spirit. And then I heard Tina Marie. Something about you makes me think of Tina Marie. Someone in the choir at New Covenant Holiness Church said to me one day after a rehearsal. I'd never heard of her, so I went to Camelot Music and picked up Irons in the Fire and Wild and Peaceful, the two CDs they had in stock. One afternoon, I put on Irons and my life was never the same again. Here I am, I'm just a fragment of my God. Heavenly Father, hear me, sometimes life gets so hard, Tina sang, in between songs lamenting the loss of love and the ecstasy of a love that had completely turned her inside out. But when I heard Tune In Tomorrow, the album's closer, written with her best friend Mickey Boyce, I was undone. Within two weeks, I had the bulk of her discography and was absorbing the poems included in the liner notes, reading her acknowledgments, and learning her language. There's a lot of discourse about Tina's incredible voice, but as unbelievable as her voice is, it was her lyrics, which to me are the center of her musical presentation, that drew me in. She was a poet, a philosopher, and a spiritual seeker. I would dare to call her a healer. There was something about Tina's quest for and celebration of romance that unlocked all the things I'd felt somewhere deep inside, but kept under lock and key. 
She was bringing me to the fore of a crash course in self-confrontational wholeness. Over the course of the next few years, I accepted myself as a gay man. I left the church. I found my voice as a human and as a singer and writer, in large part because of her unwillingness to be anything but herself in the world, and her courage to put that story into her songs and poems. I wanted to experience all the drama and romance she wrote about. I scored on the drama, not so much on the romance, but Tina's music was my soundtrack through those relationships, and it kept me believing in the possibility of love, which I did indeed find. Bettina was also an educator. Her album's inserts were nothing short of bibliographies, pointing her listeners to the people and things that inspired her. It was because of her reference to the poet Ntazaki Shangay that I went to Barnes & Noble and asked them what books were available to order. Ntazaki's Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo had a huge impact on my life and creativity, and remains a novel I still read once a year. Machiavelli Never Lied from Ladonia proves that Tina existed without a generation gap in her consciousness, citing Tupac Shakur, Aaliyah, Shaka Khan, Jesus Christ, and Joni Mitchell all in the same breath. All of this from Tina Marie? Absolutely. Listen to Batukata Suite and hear how deeply she understood the connections between all of the faiths. Find Blackberry Player from the unreleased Black Rain, or the Mackin Game from Ladonia, or the video for Work It, and recognize how she understood and acknowledged the fluidity of attraction, sexuality, and gender performance when those kinds of conversations were still taboo in popular music. Revisit the perfect feeling from her posthumous release, Beautiful, and bask in the glory of spiritual and sensual transcendence happening simultaneously, with Tina serving as the shaman. When I saw Tina in concert for the first time in 2004, I understood why I'd seen her as a shaman. To witness her in concert was to experience a high priestess presiding over her congregation. I'll never forget when she was performing out on a limb, watching a woman in front of us get overcome with the Spirit, so much so that as we did in the Holiness Church, three women held hands and formed a circle around her to make sure she didn't go over the railing. To feel the palpable love in the auditorium as she walked through the Fox Theater singing Deja Vu is something I will never, ever forget. But I'm most grateful for Tina's example, her willingness to defy the tyranny of white supremacy and live life unconstrained by the dictates of whiteness served as a model for me as my own life path had fractured my relationship with my birth family and the community in which I'd been raised. On the back cover of It Must Be Magic, Tina recalled being chased home from school, taunted by racist slurs that echoed the very slurs my grandparents had hurled at me. I cannot express how important her truth, the sharing of her experience, sustained and validated me as a teenager determined to live a life outside of the framework I'd been raised to know. Her writings of her experiences of race and culture were so critical and affirming to my own expanding consciousness at the time. Oh, uh, well, hello, Tim. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's so weird talking to a person, you know, that you know so well on Twitter, because, you know, especially because I think intimacy is so interesting these days because we communicate with people that we don't necessarily know um, in a face-to-face -face way in the same way that we actually do with family members and everything like that, because most of us text you know, our families and friends, and then we also use the same methods of using the, you know, phone keyboard to communicate with um, 
<laughs> with people we don't really know, like on Twitter and stuff yes. like that. So it's kind yes. of fascinating. It creates a sort of it, – it, I think in some ways people talk about how social media often um, sort of disrupts face-to-face intimacy. But in a way, I think it fosters it because the communication modes are the same and it – uh, in, totally. it, it sort of has a sense of familiarity that it took a longer time, I think, to um, to do when you back in the day when we actually like met people and talked to people. Like you know, it was a while before you would meet somebody and then like invite them into your home, and yeah. it would be a while before you would like call them on the phone and stuff like that. But now we are talking to people via um, our fingers in like our most intimate spaces with sitting at home in the bed and all this kind of stuff. And just the virtual presence of a person there, I think makes um, it feel very intimate. Well, so much more information. (laughs) No, no, no. Because I think so much more of the, like the headline information that when we didn't have the internet that we had to find out, it's all there, like in somebody's bio <laughs> or on their yeah, website right. <laughs> or on their site. And so when you link out, you just read everything you ever would have talked about over the course of like three or four get-togethers 25 years ago. And now we just, we, we all of that gets moved out right away, like in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I bet you're going to, you're going to increasingly get this, at the you know, the, the more your writing gets out there, because I get this a lot, having written a memoir, and it wasn't something that I expected. But, you know, when you're writing something, it's just communicating between you and the page, right? And then you put it out yes. there. And it's fine that it's out there, but then sometimes people will come up to me and like mention something like really super personal, I'm like, yeah. oh my god, how do you know that? And it was like, it's in your book, stupid. And I'm like, oh shit, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was just thinking, yeah. reading your um, Tina piece. I think I've read it probably like five times now. Um, wow. It's so um, you have so many personal details that I can see somebody walking up to you like the, the grocery store or something, going, "Oh, weren't you a part of this church? Or weren't you?" <laughs> You'll be like, yeah. "What? How do you know this? Who are you?" <laughs> well, and I think those details. I mean, is. is I was nervous about this because I, you know, when I was a songwriter, you get to embed lots of personal details in a song and people don't necessarily know how personal they are because you can mask the language a little differently, Mm -hmm. but you know, and writing this, I mean, David Nathan really wanted a personal piece. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, (laughs) here we go. And I haven't, so I haven't done it for a really long time. It was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable just getting started on it. But I think this is what, you know, I think this is what Tina would have wanted her, you know, the people that have loved her work to do. I mean, this is what she did. She -hmm. really laid it, most of it out there for us. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, definitely her music, um, you get a sense. I mean, I think not just through the music, but through the music, through the album art, the packaging, you really got a sense of knowing her. Like each album was like a gift. Whereas like, you know, my favorite singer, Shaka Khan, I mean, even after all, (laughs) you know, after being obsessed with every single thing that she's ever sung, watched every interview, everything like that, I I would never even begin to think that I knew her or anything like that like that no she idea ain't giving nothing up in that way yeah exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah 
Well, so I, so, and that, go no, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. You go, you're the guest. Was, you go ahead. You get the right well, away. I think that's what really, for me, that's what drew me into Tina because it was so vulnerable. Um, even if the words necessarily weren't necessarily so uh, revealing, the voice is so guttural. Like it's coming mm-hmm. from a place that is just like the deepest part of someone's soul. And you hear that in how she uses her voice. I mean, she is really asking to be seen. Yes. And oh my gosh. Or, dem- yes. or demanding. <laughs> you know, depending on how yeah. That works too. And you so know, I, I think that that's, it's just the best part of her. <laughs> I'm, I think of that when I think of um, – I, I think that's so I, – I, mean, I just want to make sure nobody missed it, but you were saying that she sings like she's demanding to be seen. And I think probably the vocal that just epitomizes that is um, her vocal on fire and desire. Just the way yeah. she comes into that record is like, good God, what's going on? You know what yeah. I mean? yeah. And then you know you were talking so much about her spirituality and – they called her one take Tina because that was one take. And um, right. that ha- you have to be – just like when I'm writing in the easiest way and it's flowing, that's God speaking through me. And I think when you, you're able to do these like heroic acts, whether it's a heroic vocal or something like that, when you're ever able to kind of like do something extraordinary at the drop of the dime, I think that that is – those are the moments that you're most connected to some kind of higher power or to, you know, a, a spirit. And um, and then I was thinking what was so interesting about that. I've been in the I haven't been in the hospital very much in my life, but one time I had a um, bout of pneumonia that was really really bad. It was, you know, and like I, one of those people don't really understand how serious pneumonia is, but like it was one of those things like none of the antibiotics were working and it was just kind of crazy. And I had all of these sort of still moments where I definitely felt a detachment from the everyday reality. It was almost like I was making a choice of like, am I going to stay in this world? Because I could easily just with like closing my eye. And it wasn't scary or anything. It was like, but I could just easily just add um, taking a breath. I could go someplace else. And and there really was no pros and cons. It was just kind of like, uh, I guess, you know, I'm only 18 or 19. <laughs> I might as well stay here. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would. I think I was. Um, that was when the Fleetwood Mac greatest hits with the Green album, with the Green one yes. came out. I was kind of. Yes. I kind of feel like hearing. I kind of feel like playing my Fleetwood Mac greatest hits again. I don't think I want to die right now. You know, but it was literally yes. that kind of um, sort of a spur of the moment type of decision. And then when you know, I think a Tina's story of leaving the hospital. And immediately going to the studio and doing that fire and desire vocal, I'm yes. wondering. You know, I'm 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 really thinking about like was she in? And even if you're not having that deep of a spiritual kind of experience as I did, when you're in the hospital, you are always thinking about issues of mortality and that type of thing. Yes. And so I think it's just so powerful that she went right from the hospital to with a fever, mind you. And fevers can yes. make you crazy anyway, you know. Exactly, exactly. Do that fever, and then just do that vocal that's so, like that vocal says, like, I'm here, I'm still here, I want to live, I'm going to live, just in that opening note, you know. Yes, yes. Well, and most singers, 
you'd, I would almost argue like she'd have to be delirious from fever to to do that kind of vocal because most singers would start up there and we would look at them and say, and where are you going to go from there? Because <laughs> right. So up there and she just takes it higher and higher and higher and higher. And it's completely transcendent. You yes. know, it's a, it's a transcendent moment. And I agree with you. I think that I was watching an interview with her daughter today and her daughter talked about Tina having cognizance that she was going to die. Mm. Um, like in the years leading up to her passing and that she prepared her daughter for that eventuality Mm -hmm. and that she knew that. And so I would assume that in that kind of moment in the hospital, having, I believe she had pneumonia too, didn't she? Uh, I I think she she did. Yeah. Something like, yeah, something feverish. (laughs) If you are connected in any kind of way, that those are the things that are happening. And so when you get called in to do a spiritual task, like deliver a vocal on that kind of song, it would make sense that it would be one of the most dynamic things she ever did. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Yeah. It's just so, it's, it's such a, um, I mean, because there's so many things we can talk about Tina. We can talk about Tina as a vocalist. We can talk about Tina as a musician. We can talk about Tina as a producer. We can talk about Tina as a songwriter. And, you know, but just as a vocalist, like, I think sometimes it's important for regular people like me that don't sing or write music or something like that just to step back and realize that at one at some point, the words that she sang in Fire and Desire were just written on a page. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, hmm that the, what, what we experience of that song is a genius interpretation of the emotions of those words because they are just words on a page. There's nothing more. It's only what she brings to it that gives it yes. that power. Right, because I can promise you that wasn't modeled after Rick James' demo of Fire and Desire. Yeah. Oh, have you heard that? <laughs> No, but I'm just saying, like... Oh, you know, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I know, right. Like, he doesn't sing like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. He's more of a doo wop person. He, that's his, That's his like, um, touchstone. Right. You know, he kind of has those, those doo-wop roots in his head. And so, yeah, I can imagine it. And even Tina, kind of her... Um, I, I was just listening to David Nathan's... Um, and, you know, all respect to David Nathan, let's just say that. Um, I was just listening to his interview with her, one of his, his 2010 interview with her, where she was talking about her favorite, um, three favorite songs. Where she was talking about her seven favorite songs of hers and then three mm-hmm. favorites of other people. And it was Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Um, and she said she'd go with the Ross or gay version. I'd go with the gay. Um, I mean, I'd go with the Ross, sorry. <laughs> I'm so gay, I can't even... <laughs> <laughs> it is gay. It's just a default <laughs> word that comes out of my mind. Okay, and then it was um, um, the Dells, the love we had would stay on my mind. And she was talking mm. about how she was influenced vocally by um, the male vocal groups of the 70s, like the moments and everything. And I was, and yes. so as Tina often does, she, that is going to send me tonight kind of spiraling into a whole male vocal of the 70s things because that's really probably my weakest I'm I'm, you know as a gay man I'm very much more drawn to female vocalists and stuff and then in the 70s it was kind of about groups um you know I know Mm -hmm. 
my mom was really into the moments and stuff, but I've never really spent a lot of, other than like the stylistics and children of the night and stuff like yep. that. Oh, and other than, there are always exceptions, and other than the spinners, because I'm a Felipe Wynn super fan. So oh, other yes. than those, oh, yes. but you know, but the thing about like somebody like him is he sings sort of, it, he gives as much emotion to his vocals as a lot of women do. So it's like a yes, lot of the male yes. vocalists I like, and like Luther, you know, have modeled themselves after women. So it gets all complicated. But the bottom line is I'm going to go back and listen to some of those um, things and kind of listen for Tina in that. So that's going to be an exciting thing. But the third song was um, I'll Try Something New, and I'm glad that she chose my favorite version, which is the Supremes and the Temptations version. Yes. Yes. But the, the point I was trying to make in all of that, because, you know, you get to a certain age where you can kind of easily, like, let that <laughs> point run away. The point I was making, podcast listeners, is that um, she is such a big, emotive singer, but the things that she tends to like, if we're thinking about, like, the Motown songs, like, um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough or I'll Try Something New, are very kind of restrained and mannered type of um, performances, and that's completely opposite to anything that she ever does. So I think it's very, it's, it's so genius <laughs> when people can take inspiration for yes. something from something and do something entirely different and entirely them with it. Well, we also have to remember that, and that's the, the, yes, because that's the thing that it makes her fascinating because she had that on one side influencing her, which is also like that gender bending side of her that I really love because she can take that male falsetto inspiration but she can also fuse it with what she was pulling from Aretha and Sarah Vaughn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's those two th different sides fused that makes Tina the vocalist she was. Because... You know, that is so interesting. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, you go ahead. Like I said, you're the guest. You always get the right away. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, when you think about that mix, her volume – and her um, that demanding to be seen that we referenced earlier really, I think, comes from the female influence. But her a lot of her licks, a lot of her um, phrasing comes from the men, and I find that you know, completely fascinating. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, and this is something I'm like we're way off my notes at this point. But um, you know, for men, a falsetto is like doing a high wire act. Right, it's something unexpected, and it's the sound like if when a, a guy can go deep and then go really, really high, it's like we're all watching like a trapeze artist, like oh, are they gonna fall? Are they gonna crack? Are they gonna? You know? yeah. So it's it's really an act of daring. So I think that really does explain her approach to vocals. It's like it's not just that she's singing high because she's a woman and she has that you know that kind of voice or whatever stereotype that is but she is pushing it in a daring way like a lot of male vocalists, like a lot of male vocalists who sing yeah. falsetto do. Yeah. Interesting. But we have made a lot of great points um, and haven't <laughs> even really begun. So, <laughs> so you mentioned that David Nathan um, asked you to write the piece and he said he wanted it to be very personal. So is that the genesis of the piece or we had it? Tell me well, how it all came about. Well, it came about because he started this new section on soulmusic.com called Remembrances, and the first one was on Frankie Beverly and Mays, and he wanted it to come from 
you know, people who love music, but he wanted to gather stories on how music has impacted listeners, like the difference it's made in people's lives. And he said, you know, is there anybody you would want to write about? And I immediately said, Tina. (laughs) I'm sure Um, you didn't need to sleep overnight on that one, right? (laughs) No, not at all, because I don't get to write about her a lot. A lot of my emphasis is on gospel music and contemporary Christian music. And, um, I, you know, I feel like there's also a place for her in that whole world because there's so much spirituality in her work, but I don't really get to focus on her a lot. And I thought, oh, my God, I'd love to talk about Tina and how she really just, you know, helped shape the the direction of my life and, and affirms mm-hmm. me in so many ways. And so I said, give me, you know, give me give me two weeks to to work on it because I've, you know just had some other things on my plate and I sat down and took me a few days, but that's how that came about was two weeks is a lot. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's it. No, I'm saying two weeks to do what you did in two weeks is extraordinary. So no no way. Thank you. You're making everybody embarrassed if you make that seem like that was a long time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to, I have to ask you this because this is just a writer's question. Like, okay, so he, you got the chance. He said yes, and you know you have the opportunity to um, write about somebody that you loved and all this kind of stuff. You probably had all these emotions. Now, then, you, did you then subsequently have like some deep fall and go like, oh my god, I don't feel like doing this. I, I don't, I can't do this. I want to get out of it. I don't want to write this because of was, all that you knew it was going to involve. Well, I've kind of had some weird things happening here. So we've had a sick dog for a few months, and I've been, oh, no. you know, okay. my my part-time job has been <laughs> taking her to, um, you know, the homeopathic doctor and to the vet uh-huh. and just kind of helping her get back on her feet. And it's been really stressful. And so I was actually really thrilled to get to lose myself in Tina for a few uh, days, you know, uh-huh. and it was like a vacation from everything else that was going on. And so when, as we were driving, I'm playing Tina. As I was home, you know, working, I'm playing Tina. It's kind of re-immersing and just putting myself back in it. So it was, it it actually did come fairly easily. I it was only after I was finished that I thought, okay, yeah, you're going to share this now. So people are going to read it. How do you feel about that? Are you ready for that? And um, I just I knew that at the end of the day, it was what needed to be done. So no, it wasn't hard to get started because she really okay. gave me all the inspiration. I mean, the, I, I really got lost and I, you and I actually uh, were talking about this on Twitter that I had actually ended up in an area of her catalog that wasn't the part that had sparked all of this for me. I ended up really stuck in her later works, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ivory and, to the end records. And I love those records, but they weren't the ones that, you know, jumped off my journey with her, you know? And so to be in those records was like, uh, um, in some ways it was like, I was hearing them for the first time again, because they were just coming, they were coming through so fresh. Yes. Uh, and in a very different way. And so the inspiration really was just all because of her. I mean, when I would, everything kind that people have said about this article, it's just her. It's really just her. Well, I think, you know, basically you described um, the writing process of this piece was very similar to like what we talked about with Tina's vocal and fire and desire. You know, like it was something that 
you knew so well and then you know it you obviously just trusted the voice to speak through you yeah. and it did so yeah. um so beautifully um so describe your writing process like are you a like um are you a like drafter or are you like a um more of a um planner like an outliner like what kind of because a lot of people want to know how to be um um, write about music and a lot of people do it really poorly and you don't <laughs> so, well, thank you for that. but and, and I guess what I also want you to get at in terms of the process I want to know like do you plan or do you kind of just draft and write out and but I also want to know um how you think about cause not necessarily so much in this piece but definitely in like your other pieces like about Tremaine mm -hmm. Hawkins and stuff how you give all the facts but still have the whole thing feel deeply soulful well i'm the the front end of everything except for this piece this piece i didn't have to research because it was in a sense about me and it was about my experience with their music but the other things that i write like the tremaine piece for instance i mean that was uh, a lot of research and reading on the front end and finding articles i was really working really hard to like find tremaine's words because i tried multiple times to um, make contact with her husband manager and just wasn't able to. And I had, there were people I'd interviewed that tried to connect me with her and it just didn't happen. And I thought, well, it's still incredibly important to have her words on the record. And so finding interviews with her specifically talking about that work, the research piece is always what I go for first an intensive reading and rereading and trying to, um, in a sense, empath with the artist mm -hmm. to really understand what was happening for them, where they were talking to people that were involved in the projects. The interviews are really important for me. Mm -hmm. You know, in that Tremaine situation, I interviewed like multiple people who were in the session, people that had toured with her. Um, and I had stories not taped, but I had stories from memory that like Daryl Coley had shared with me before he died of his time on the road with her. And, so I had, you know, conversations around this artist as well that really helped me understand the dynamics. And I tried, that's really honestly with almost everything I write, that's the beginning of my process is that like full immersion in what I'm writing about. And it just becomes my world while I'm working on the piece. So I think, you know, and like as an editor vibe and just editing and all this kind of stuff, I, you know, work with and as a teacher, God, I've, I've like tried to erase that part of my uh, being a professor out of my <laughs> mind, <laughs> but it was so traumatic. But you know, I, I've worked with a lot of people, and like, so okay, so there's some people that are very good at doing that part, and then there's some people that are very good at writing beautifully, but they don't want to research. They don't even want to like research so much as go on Wikipedia. So right. I'm wondering, like, what is the process? And I, you're like me, like I have everything has to start very research. And I look back at some of my um, earliest stuff and my voice isn't so much there, but at least the, it's, I, you know, the facts are there, so yes. whatever, my voice yes. comes later. But um, so what is the period, describe to me the period of like between you finally feel, get that feeling of, okay, because I think at some point, you know, if you're a real researcher, you all you, you are you're never satisfied, but at some point you always have to Agreed. make peace with this is what I was able to do within this period of time and now I have to move <laughs> on to the writing. You know what I mean? Yes. 
Yes. And so I'm just wondering what's that in-between process from you between, okay, I've read all this stuff, I've done all this stuff, and then there's still this thing that has to be created. Typically I get – and this I'm, I sound like a crazy hooey-dooey new age person because – but that's kind of my – there's a something after I have done all of the reading and researching and I – even when I feel like there's more I want to do, like in the Tremaine instance, there were two people I had reached out to that I had hoped upon hoped would reach me. And they did at a certain point, I just made my peace that this may not happen. And I got some internal, yes, that this is the time you're going to sit down and write this piece. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and when I felt at peace, I always kind of jokingly say the spirits talk to me and tell me when it's, like you've done as much as you can do now you do it and that's really an internal thing but that's my process it really is i've got pieces i've been working on uh research for for months that i just know aren't finished that i have not gotten everything i need and so i hold them and i haven't even started writing them because i don't know what else i'm going to find out one thing another thing that i think is so strong about your writing is like um which people don't do you know, it's just – it's weird that just I, – I just wish greatness was just assumed. It would make the world a lot more of a enjoyable place. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why I'm just so happy when it's, it's something, like, fantastic. And I just sort of, like, wondered, like, why can't there be more fantastic things, you know? I, I just it, – it's frustrating. But, you know, so, like, the, one thing I love, even especially, like, in the Tremaine piece and everything like that, you – and unlike the way traditional journalists are – taught to write you tell a story in every piece you write that i've read it's like mm-hmm. i get a beginning it's like a pixar film you know i get a beginning very clear beginning very clear middle mm-hmm. very, mm-hmm. i get an act two, one an act two and an act three and it always feels yes. fully satisfying and so it just as a writer is that something that you structure out like on the page or is that just all in your head how does that that's in my head it's all in my head okay it's all in my head. And, and a lot of times with a lot of what I write about, unfortunately, a lot of the endings aren't always happy <laughs> because uh, in many cases people have died or, you know, uh, but yeah, there's life. <laughs> yeah. And so I always in my head know, okay, I've got to get there somehow, but it can't be abrupt. And there's got to be something that points to the events that led up to that. And how do I stay focused on What's the real story here? Because that's what also, I mean, I'm typically focusing on, in, on God's Music is My Life, I'm typically focusing on an album versus right. the entire trajectory of someone's career. And in those, you know, closing paragraphs, I am ca- um, um, summarizing what ends up happening for that artist, but I don't have to go into every, uh, all the minutiae of the rest of their career. And so I always have that in the back of my head. And I have, my husband is an incredible um, editor. And so when I finish a draft, he reads it and he's very quick to say like, cut this too many words, do this, you know, and, and he kind of, if I ever get off really his editorial eye, I really rely on it because he also knows how long have you been together? (laughs) Uh, we'll be married nine years uh, this summer. Okay, because that could often be a, a cause of great tension within a relationship when somebody reads. <laughs> like my last long-term relationship, which was years ago, um, years and years and years ago um, by choice. But um, it got to a point that I just had to – we had to stop reading each other's stuff because – 
you know, the way somebody writes is so much connected to the yes. way that they their thinking process and like yes. often familiarity makes you so um you know somebody's thinking process so well and if you're yes. kind of irritated with an aspect of that thinking process that manifests itself in the writing so it's like um so like my you know uh, my best friend who you know we were once um partners we've been friends longer than we were partners um I'm like a, I mean, you may be able to tell this on Twitter or just whatever, but I'm a very cut to the chase person. Like, I just, I don't have yeah. any time for, I don't think out loud. I don't do anything. I don't really yeah. contemplate a lot of things. I just like, a decision has to be made. So let's just, okay, this one, you know, like, I, I'm just, because I think that being decisive clears the space, being decisive about trivial things clears more of my mind and heart for important spiritual matters you know what i mean yes, I, I don't want to yes. be bogged down in you know figuring out like what toothpaste or something you know i, I just okay this teeth whitening okay good you know what i mean sensitivity <laughs> you know, it's just i just you know i'm very very quick like that to the point that i mean a lot of people that don't really know me can perceive me as abrupt but it's just like i really try to manage the amount of um, mental and spiritual energy that i give to trivial things Whereas mm -hmm. my um, best friend is a pro, you know, ex-boyfriend is a process thinker, and he's also a process writer. So it's like, in the same way that if we're having a conversation, you know, I'm just like, I, I'm just feeling in, when we were like together, and I was like arguing, I'm just like, get to the damn point, you know. That's the same way I feel when I was reading his um, first drafts and stuff, and I would feel the same emotion. So at some point, we just kind of had to go like, okay, like, I'll get my stuff edited, some, you get your stuff. And it made life so much better, you know. And even yes. with my late yes. friend, um, Valerie Boyd, who just passed, you know, yes. we started so out. Thank you very much for that. Um, we started out very much like writing together and sharing drafts and coming up with each other's titles and doing all of that kind of stuff. But then there became a point that just for a lot of like a little reason, like just I moved, just there become a came a point when it just felt like that wasn't necessary anymore. And we both kind of came to the decision at the same time without really ever talking about it. And from that time, we never really read each other's work. And um wow. Because it had something, it was like a maturing of the friendship and also a maturing Got of it. us as writers. Because at yes. some point, you know how it is. At the end of the day, it's just about you and whoever the editor's paying you or putting it out or whatever is doing. Like at some point, you have to have that kind of confidence within yourself to at least put something out into the world, you know, and yes. not feel like you need. You know, it's one thing to get feedback because you want things to make it better. But I think a lot of times as writers, we're trained to seek feedback as approval, you know, and Agreed. I think that's what stops a lot of um, writers from taking the sort of entrepreneurial route um, because they feel like if they work with an editor at a major publisher, like that person knows something and they don't realize that that person is just pulling a nine to five, like everybody else. And they're really only, they're yeah. as interested in your stuff as you are interested in the stuff that you get paid to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. I that's right. Like, what makes these are not like people that are like 
these are not passion projects. It's like these people go to work and they go to nine five. They do the best that they can within that guy, and then they go home and do stuff that they actually give a crap about. You know, yeah. Don't feel yeah. that that level of, and then they might easily take another job the next week. So it just breaks my heart right. that so many people feel like they need that approval. And when you get in the system, you realize that these are just people that are like. You know, sitting at their desk, taking deep breaths, drinking Diet Coke to get through the day. It's not some yes. huge, like, literary sort of you know, meeting of the minds or anything. Yes. 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 So, um, okay, I already said this. You're my favorite type of writer because you write with soul, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> one thing you mentioned in the um, piece is that, you know, how somebody's told you you reminded – you, that you reminded them of Tina Marie, and then you went back and bought the first two albums that I believe Camelot had in stock at the time. Camelot um, Music, oh, I missed them. Yeah, another thing that people I was never I was never like a chain. I, I sometimes because I was I guess because I um, grew up in a city where there were a lot of like local chains and a lot of like mm-hmm. I I actually grew up in the era with like black record stores, which was just the most amazing thing in the world. Wow. Like in the seventies, where yes. you walk in and people would know you by your name and they would know the type of music you like. And, you know, it was a whole experience, like going in the store, you, you know, it was like a 30 to hour long thing. It's like me and my mother, we would go in this one store. It was on New Hampshire Avenue, um, right across the Maryland line. And like, you know, there would be like black light posters everywhere. Women with like big boot, naked boobs, <laughs> <Guys> <laughs> afros, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was just the kind of thing, like, he knew I loved Shaka Khan, so anything that remotely related to Shaka Khan would be waiting for me. You know, my mother could say, oh, I like the song, that song by the moment. And I was like, okay, well, I got that's out of stock, but I'll get that for you. So just swing by tomorrow. I mean, it was just such a great, loving sort of wow. way to come into music, you know. Yes. And, um, yes. and I've had that at every stage of my development. So that was like as a kid. But even when I got into dance music, you know, I always had – there was a store called 12 inch dance records in dc and like the people there like mentored me in the music and would like push my taste you know what i mean would like deliberately try to throw me something maybe that was a little bit not what i was normally into and that that i was so grateful for that because that expanded my aesthetics and um you know, we're, we're now you can't even like make a cop. You you can't do any of that nowadays. Or people just no, think you're like dissing no. them, or you're. It's so horrible, you know. Yes. But the question I was trying to ask, because I keep going <laughs> off topic, we keep getting off on these things. The question I wanted to ask is like, what was the first Tina Marie album where you had kind of caught up with her, where it was like you had had the catalog and everything like that, and you understood that you loved her as an artist, and now she's releasing a new album, what was that? It would have been um, Passion Play would have been the one that, uh, yeah, because Ivory, we're talking at this juncture, 1991. So Ivory had just come out and I got it, but I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that it had, that it was like brand, brand new in a sense. Right. Because I got that, I would have gotten it a year later. It would have been. And people don't realize that like nobody knew, Record releases weren't like something that people were putting on Twitter or like that was like you didn't no. necessarily know. You could easily not know that your favorite artist had something out if it wasn't like a complete radio hit or if it didn't 
wasn't on the cover. I mean, it was just very easy for things to slip through the cracks back in those days. I mean, at 15, 16, I wasn't reading Billboard. <laughs> I didn't have, uh, uh, if it wasn't on an end cap in the record store, um, you know, or in the, like, remember they used to put the new releases out front? Oh, you yeah. Know, you know, you'd walk in. And I mean, if it wasn't there, you just really didn't know. And so, yeah, Passion Play was the first one that I was caught up with her. And I was, I was completely um, blown away by it. I think that's a great that would have been a great because I think you know that's everything about everything that Tina does well she does on that album you know what I mean yes and yes it's and it's so much like you get past Tina and you get um and one thing I just love about that is you know I love her kind of autobiographical where she's kind of and just main squeeze on that just always I mean, I yes. feel like I should have been a single. I should have, you know, just with her telling. I love when she just tells. I love so many things she does. But I love when she tells, like, really specific stories. Um, same thing with, like, Rare Breed um, on yes. the beautiful album that I love so much. And, um, yeah, so I think that's a really that's a really great one. And I don't under – do you have any idea, like, what – obviously, she was in a situation where she um, – I guess where the self um, have, being her own label head that that she didn't have enough funds, I guess, to push the record to the next level. But do you have any idea like why it just kind of disappeared that she didn't even want to um, sort of try to get it re-released like through uh, like, I don't know, like UMG or something? You know, I mean, it just seems I could be weird wrong about this, but my understanding of it from interviews I've read and things I've heard her say in interviews is that there were legal problems um, shortly mm. after the release and when that was settled she got the inventory and they were just in her garage um, mm. for years and she didn't know what to do with them. In fact, uh, I know that they sold them for a while on the original soulmusic.com store. David Nathan and I were just oh. talking about this. That, you know, I guess Tina's people had reached out and they sold it through the store for a while back in the early internet days. Um, but I don't know why she didn't at some juncture um, have it re-released just digitally at the very least. Yeah. Um, but I don't really get the sense that she was really on uh, I want to say this the right way. I don't know that she really knew how to do all of those things. Mm. And I think she was just really focused on making the new work and um, getting that in the world. I think, you know, she talked about in, in a few interviews that I've seen where she said like, that was a really great record and nobody heard it. So I know she was proud of it. I know that it wasn't right. about her feeling like, you know, it was something she was embarrassed by or didn't want people to hear. She always felt it was a great record. Um, and I love that wild horses made it on to beautiful. Right. I, but so why not just put the whole thing on? You know what I mean? Like it could have been like a bonus disc on beautiful. I just will never understand how this fantastic album by this, this well-beloved artist is just, I mean, I have two copies just because I'm scared. It, I don't know. What would happen? Me too. They're always me in the, too. Okay, and the thing is, they're always in the same place. So if like there was a catastrophe, then so it's not yeah, really. Yes, something but it's could just, happen. I need, to, 
I need that sense of security that I have to yes. physical CDs and, you know, that helps me sleep at night. Um, you know, one thing that I was reading through a lot of Tina's stuff and just, you know, getting kind of like sickened and um, like at some of the headlines for her obituaries where everybody yes. was calling her the ivory queen of soul. And they're saying, and then it, it's just this weird news media, um, you know, the way things feed on each other because it's like one thing – one writer would say she's the ivory queen of soul, you know, just completely just using, like, just a title. I mean, just dumb, but, like, that. And then other writers, like, as people called her the ivory queen of soul, I've never heard one King Marie fan call her the ivory queen of soul. It's, it's These things are so bizarre to me, how they get – how these kind of designations get stirred up by just one person, and then they kind of perpetuate, yes. and it has no connection to – reality or the actual experience of people that love the music. Yes. Yes. Well, and it's either, because it was either that or it was 80s um, pop star. Oh yeah. One hit wonder. One hit, that's a good one. One hit that's, wonder. That's, I mean, it was one hit wonder. <laughs> and I just thought, well, yeah. this is exactly, I mean, this is ultimately, I feel like was the big struggle of her. I shouldn't even say struggle. Cause I think, I feel like she was in anything I have ever heard her say, in interviews, she was at peace with where her career was in many ways. But oh, yeah. Was like, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. The, the, the white audience's inability to um, deal with her was really a travesty. And it's their loss, ultimately, because black music lovers got to enjoy all this incredible music for 30-some-odd years but, you know, Rick James said, you know, she's the greatest singer since Barbara Streisand and her own people don't even know who she is. Whoa. Say that one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> Rick sure said, he that. said this in People magazine. He said, Tina Marie is the, you know, the, the greatest singer since Barbara Streisand and her own people don't even know who she is. Mm. Doesn't that just say so much about like white supremacy and stuff and the sacrifices totally. people make to give their lives to, to – Sacrifices people make to get that little bit of power that comes with whiteness. And I'm not saying little bit of power. I'm talking about like little bit of like, of course, it comes with a lot of social power, but most people do it for just that person feeling. I mean, like in the South and Jim Crow, you know, just your white, you know, mechanic needed to feel like he was some way better than the black mechanic, yeah. you know. And so it's just the things people give up for that just is it's so crazy to me. Well, and, and I mean, I, as I've over the years just been, you know, researching and trying to read and finding articles from the 80s from music industry periodicals. There were, I think I found two that actually say this, where they talk about how um, there were radio programmers on the record in, in this one article saying that they didn't play her because she was so aligned with black music. White radio programmers would not play her because of her alignment with black people. Yeah. Uh I'm not, and also being on a black label for the most of her, you know, right. um, for the early, for the establishing part of her career. Um, and then the thing that just is so kind of like, I keep keep wearing, keep, I hate keep using the word stupid, but it just does seem so like, uh, it's just like all lover, like it's just the guitars are louder and the bass is lower. <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> there's nothing different from that than any other song and I don't even particularly 
because you know I bought it first day it came out and everything like that. Because um, you know, like I said, I have my Rec Store Connects and everything. Yeah. So I yes. I, ha- I had it completely out of context to knowing that it was going to end up being her pop hit or seeing a video or anything. I just I think that's the one with the can cover and she's wearing like a fur hat or something. So anyway, I just had the forty five literally because um, I think okay. that dropped before the twelve inch. And you know, I was just kind of like, okay, you know. Um, I like it. I, I thought it faded too fast. I, always, I feel like every song on Star Child kind of like fades too fast. But I was just like, it was, it was like, okay. I felt like I liked it maybe a little bit better than Fix It. But like both of those songs were profoundly disappointing to me as first single, well, you know. Well, I was, like, can I? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, I just want to say like, this isn't on our list either that we were going to talk about, but like the single choices, throughout her career, post-Motown, were odd. All of the single yes. choices were yeah. odd. That's She'd a great word for it. have all incredible material on the record, like, you know, and they would never – I think Out on the Limb is probably – and If I Were a Bell uh, oh are probably gosh, like yeah. the two great decisions they made, but they were also <laughs> placed in the wrong sequence. Yeah, because they were like second singles, right? The yeah, only thing they got yeah. right, I think, was Ooh La La La. Wasn't that the first single? Agree. Agree. Okay, so I then... love that Rick told her it was the worst thing she ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> As she's collecting all that Fuji's money, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is the thing that kills me about Robbery, because, like, Robbery, again, I oh. mean, cause probably when I was – and I experienced all these – in real time. So it's like, I've had the experience of them, like when I was a kid and also like going back to them, but like, it must be magic just meant so much to me. And, you know, I was just so into it and the the different things and like, where's California. And just, I mean, it just really, just like the way books, some people read books and it can open up their mind to so many possibilities. I mean, that album just did that for me. And I was just so rooting for her and following all the news and when she went to Epic and everything like that. And, you know, again, the first day, because I knew when I knew all the, because I would, you know, had connects at the record stores. I knew the day that releases came. I knew when the boxes would come. I knew who got um, the records directly shipped to them and who had to come from a distributor because the ones that got shipped directly to them, you'd always get those earlier. So anyway, so, you know, so then when I got fixed it and just, and then the, the, again, people don't re- realize this, but there was always that long connect, long disconnect between buying a record in a record store and then making your way all the way home and, you know, stopping to eat or whatever before you can finally put it on the player and play yes. it. Yes. And I just remember playing Fix It and just being like, okay. Like, it just, it's, I don't hate the song or anything like that. It's just, to me, there's nothing particularly special about the song as a Tina Marie song. And, um, I just don't know why that was a single. And whereas like Midnight Magnet has such a is such a jam and kinda and being on Epic, you know, that it kinda has that sort of Billy Jean ish sort of ominous quality to it. And I'm like, what were yes. they thinking? Which she and she did it on Soul Train. She did Midnight <laughs> oh, yeah, Magnet I, I remember on that, Soul I, Train. Yeah. I yeah. It wasn't like the fourth or fifth single or something. It was like so old that even I didn't care about it. <laughs> it was a single. But. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. It was a single. Um, I mean, I personally, if I had been the person and in the room at you know Epic, <laughs> and I just felt like we need to do an up tempo song first, 
it would have been either Midnight Magnet or Playboy. Oh, Playboy. That Playboy's a jam. Like, Playboy didn't know. I yeah. Just, it, it's not my favorite song, but, like, when it comes on at the right time, it definitely hits. It definitely hits. Yeah. And, and so he, all those great ballads, they didn't do anything. Nope, I'm sorry. I'm going off. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. We can talk about the. We can talk about robbery because robbery has some great ballads. So please do go on. Well, I mean, I thought you know it had so many great ballads, and they didn't get. I mean, I know they became Quiet Storm hits like Dear Lover, uh, Casanova uh, Brown, of course. Woo, but I mean, that whole album <laughs> had so much weight, and they did not capitalize on it at all. Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean. Yeah, it, I mean, weight is a really good word for it because it's just, you know, so much depth and so much density in uh, to the lyrics, to the musicality, to the vocals on that record. It, it It's just such a – and, I, you know, it's probably like one of my favorite covers. I, I had never really given that a lot of thought, but I love that cover. It's so – I think Great it just cover. looks so cool and so 80s and so, like, I'm, here's the new chapter of my career. I, I just I, I right. love the cover. I so thought it was the thing. whole thing I'm was sorry, a brilliant reinvention. I just thought it was a brilliant yes. reinvention. That's all. That was sorry. badly managed. <laughs> it was a brilliant, yes. re- a brilliant reinvention artistically that was badly managed in putting it out into the world. Because I don't think yes. I would have minded Fix It. Fix It might have been like my little underground jam, you know, like, oh, I like this much. You know, if it had just been an album track. But as a lead single, it just was, you know, left a lot to be – desired and it just really made it seem like epic didn't understand what people loved about tina marie you know what i mean like that you know like you think of like a square biz has so many layers to it you think about like it must be magic and all this stuff and even think about like i need your loving has so many i think she said it has like five hooks in it you know like yes yes but fix it is very like one level (laughs) the whole thing through there's nothing like crazily um, referential about any of the lyrics. It just is, you know, like it's fine, but it's just who thought that was should be the first single? It's just it's crazy yeah. to me. To get my attention, a Siddhartha bow. I mean, Siddhartha on the radio. Is that ever like <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I love it because it's that kitschy Tina doing and you know pulling on you know her spirituality stuff and Intaziki Shange and all of that you know in that brew on that song, but that's not a top forty hit on no. R and B or on <laughs> or on pop either one. And see, I missed a lot of those things that you were talking about, and so I'm going to go back and listen. If, I'm, if I come back and have an addendum to this and say, oh, Fix is my favorite song, because again, I mean, Fix It came out, what year was that? What year did Robbery come out? Um, like 83, maybe? Yeah. So I was like, um, I don't know, whatever 1983 minus 68 is. <laughs> I was like, I know I was a teenager. So. I got I I like the stuff that I you know and I would research all of her references and stuff like that but um you know I miss you catch a lot of things because you mentioned on Twitter not that long ago like the um her referencing Marlena Shaw on Sapphire and I didn't say mm-hmm. anything I was like what I don't think she says anything about Marlena Shaw and then of course I played it and it was instantly <laughs> recognizable that she was doing the monologue to um go away little boy and I was like yes. that I was like that's it. <laughs> Because at first I, think, yeah, I, was, I was like listening, I was like, I was just, and she's, you know, and she she mentions a million names, and I'm expecting her to go, Marlena Shaw, <laughs> just whatever. <laughs> but then I was listening 
listening to the dialogue, and I was like, oh, yeah, yes, that's because go with I like I know every word of your Afro Sheen, your Afro Sheen. Go look it up in the Black Beautiful. That's my jam. Yes. As soon as she started talking, I I said, oh, that's exactly what she's doing. You know, gotta look up in the mirror, look at the Black Beautiful. But honey, that ain't paying no bills. (laughs) (laughs) Think you're ever gonna get a job? That is, I mean, that song just, I just, if, if people don't know that song, I just, I, maybe I'll insert it here, but that, I mean, just in terms of killer, I mean, just killer, like improv, it's up there with like Nancy Wilson's Guess Who I Saw Today, it just all that kind of stuff in terms of really putting you in the moment and just giving you all the drama of, um, yes. of that. But again, uh, we are so far away from the question I've been meaning to ask because I was asking you about the um, first time you – because I literally heard I'm Just a Sucker for Your Love being premiered on WKYS in D.C., you know, wow. and I'm just listening. Wow. And I was a Rick James fan. Like, I loved you and I and all that kind of stuff. And I had the album. Um, I think I even had Bustin' Out. Um, yeah, I definitely had Bustin' Out. And it was just so amazing because, you know, you're, you're – and, 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 you know, that was kind of the disco age too. So just – Already, I'm snapping my fingers with all that boom, 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 and you know yep. he's all, all right. That, but then this voice comes on, and I'm just like, I have never heard anyone sound like this. It's just, it's yeah. like the voice just explodes from the track. It's, it's, it's something that is not. I don't, I can't compare it to too many other things. So then, you know, of course, in the, in like, I don't know, like the fifth or sixth grade or whatever that day. <laughs> Because people really did listen to the radio like that in those days. So you really yeah. could go to school the next day and be like, did you hear this thing? And, you know, there became this discourse about Tina Marie, like Tina Marie sounds black. And, like, I, first of all, I never really thought about that at first when I heard the record. Like, I really wasn't thinking about, um, I wonder if this lady's black or not in the moment. And And that's not... I'm not trying to say, like, I'm one of those people that don't think that because I'm always, like, this person, like, like, any news story, somebody says, you know, 10 people, can, well, what's the subject? <laughs> like, that's my go-to right, question. Right. So it wasn't like that, but it was just kind of like, but then when people said that she sounded black, I've always felt like that was very reductive because, I mean, I think she, I, I kind of agree with Rick. I think, to me, she's, I mean, in terms of the tone and quality, her voice, I mean, she's, I think she sounds like a white woman. But she does thoroughly committed and does soul. Do you know what I mean? It's like by not trying yes. to be something she's not, she is being as authentically soulful as you possibly can be because no black singer is trying to be black. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like, right. But yet the things, things that she does, like the way that she uses like um, black vernacular phrases, phrases that, and phrasing, yes. that is – extraordinary like her she said the, her favorite song is um yes indeed and it just struck me like that song almost doesn't even work if you don't say yes indeed like black people say yes indeed you know what i mean mm-hmm. if you just say indeed like it wouldn't even the the melody of the song wouldn't even work you know what i mean that's right it works that's right because she's constructed it around like in a black vernacular way so um so I was just wondering with you how you had those discussions about like does Tina sound black to, or just that kind of thing and what what's your take on that because it was such a big discourse at the time. Well, I think I mean 
my feeling and, and anybody I've ever known that loves Tina Marie, it's, I've, we actually, you know, in, in the, the church folk I knew, that I was with at the time that I discovered her, it wasn't even about, in our conversations, if she sounded black, it was about the way she related to black people mm. mm-hmm. that made her part of the black music lexicon. It was because of what she I don't even want to say what she knew. I want to say it's because of who she was, if that makes sense. It was because mm-hmm. no, of her that's, that's cultural, the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. Her cultural connection made her part of that community of music and of clearly larger, the larger culture, because she is, you know, as Nelson George said, like <laughs> she is, if you go to one of her shows, who are you going to see? <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, exactly. And you know, one thing I'm thinking of, you know, I keep thinking about like um cuz just these sort of um major criticisms that just run around social media now like cultural appropriation and everything like that. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Just you know, I can't have those dialogues cuz I can't have a cultural appropriation dialogue because to me it's just too black and white and like we can talk about structural differences and in the way that people are able to have access to certain things and then to be able to get success from them. But then also mm-hmm. we have to remember that at the end of the day, musicians like talking to musicians and like, and black and white musicians have been talking to each other and communicating to each other yes. and sharing ideas. Um, yes. I'm, am I interrupting you? I don't want to interrupt you. Did I lose you? Hello? Yep, I'm here. Tim? Oh, sorry about that. Yep. I was I got a call, and I, I, I was trying to, like, not accept. It, it said end and accept, and I didn't know, does that mean in your call? <laughs> that was that. Right, right. But um, well, I was in the middle of a thought. What were we? You were, oh, yeah, the cultural appropriation about... thing. Yes. Right. And just, you know, there's no – and so, yes, so there are structural things that – make it so that white people can borrow things from black culture and get more success from it. But at the same time, there's also just the personal thing where, like I was saying, like musicians um, kind of communicate with each other. And I had this weird experience. Um, I I've talked to you and she's always on my mind about my friend Valerie that passed. And mm-hmm. I was going back through, um, I'm kind of working on this piece of this remembrance piece on her. And I was kind of going back through our text. And I found that she had texted, and I told you that we didn't really read each other's unpublished stuff anymore, right? So yes. I found that like, she had texted me this unpublished essay that she had written about her father. She texted me a Word file. I didn't even know you could text somebody a Word file, but she texted me a Word file. And I had never read it because I – I couldn't open it up on my phone, and you know she had texted me a million things after that, and I'd gone back and forth, and I just completely forgotten about it until after she passed away, and I was kind of going through her um, text. But one thing that she writes about in it that I thought was so interesting is she was talking about the process of cultivating blackness, how she was mm. thinking like how black people, like even black people need to cultivate blackness by you know engaging in certain things and everything like that like as black as you think you are you know there are ways to deepen your understanding of 
black culture. And I was just so struck by that idea of cultivating blackness because I was, you know, of course, I went to the dictionary and really made sure I knew every kind of nuance of cultivation. But, you know, some of, of to cultivate, but that some of the definitions were like to seek the society of, make friends with, to foster the growth of, and to mm. improve by labor, care, or study. So I was thinking that is the thing that I would apply to Tina. I would apply it to you. It's like I don't think I, – I would never think in terms of cultural appropriation because I think, you know, what is actually going on is that you're cultivating – you're identifying with and cultivating blackness. You're seeking the society of people. You're fostering the mm -hmm. growth of the art by contributing to the art and improving mm -hmm. it by labor. You're putting in the work, care. You, you know, have the sufficient emotional attachment, and most importantly for me, study. You know, we were just, you were just talking about all the research you do. We know all the stuff that Tina, how deeply she researched, how she researched projects yeah. like Congo Square and things like that. Yeah. And I'm thinking that that is what I'm going to hold on to going forward and kind of get rid of this cultural appropriation stuff, which really does not. I don't like critical things that don't open any doors. You know what I mean? That they're more like yeah. slamming yeah. doors. So I just love the idea of cultivating blackness because I think that's totally different from curating blackness, which is, again, like a power structure. Somebody, you know, mm -hmm. um, somebody kind of saying this is the black stuff that you which is so much of what the white critic, white rock critic response to black music has historically been. And it's, mm -hmm. also, it's different than coveting blackness, because when you yeah. covet something, yeah. you kind of want to steal it and not really you don't want the owner to know about it you know what i mean so it's like usurp it it's coming, you want to usurp it yeah you do exactly or even like kind of like traveling black which some people do like they they want to like just like they get their hair braided in jamaica or if or on vacation or something and then they come home you know there's that aspect of it and i yes. think all of yes. those things are the things that get attention but i think the people that are really most doing the best work and they're most beloved by actual black people are the ones that are cultivating blackness. So I just found that was a really, I was thanking my sister for giving me that. It's really great. For introducing that concept. Cause I, I think, and this is not even the way in the, any shape, form or fashion <laughs> of how she's using it in the essay, but it's just something yes. that I really picked up on and thought that that was just a great way of ascribing. Cause I think appreciation, some people say appreciation rather than, appropriation that seems too reductive for me too because Tina Marie is she's not appreciating she loves R&B music she lives R&B music she lives black culture it's not a, oh I appreciate that you know that's just so again it's a it's very reductionistic way to think about it exactly exactly yeah. exactly and visiting the museum and not even really engaging in the work but just you know, oh that's a Monet oh it's pretty okay what's the <laughs> that's by Matisse yeah. oh nice you know what I mean but like not really digging into it so now i don't well, want to take up all your whole after oh, go, go ahead no it's just well yeah i don't know you go really go ahead off. no you don't but i know i'm like, not I'm, you know, I, I feel like this country is so um skewed in how we evaluate things and so we don't think about the distinctions between race and culture and so it is possible mm. for someone of one race to be enculturated in a different way than what their skin tone would, in many people's minds, dictate. And I think Tina is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think was, yeah. 
Yeah. I'm never going to talk over you. I'm just going to stop. So go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, and so when I think about how we have these conversations, we really do have to be willing to ask more questions before we make a lot of assumptions. Because, you know, I think Tina is a great example of someone who, A, was just writing music for and with her community. Yes. And sharing her life within that community. And that's a huge difference than how I think when we see like a Justin Timberlake or, you know, the, the other examples that you constantly have of people that are accused of cultural appropriation, there are differences in how those things are enacted. And I think we have to stop doing the huge, you know, generalizing paintbrush stroke and be willing to really take more time in having these conversations. Was that we've got to stop a Tina reference? Was that you? <laughs> you know, we've got to stop eating like this. <laughs> I, I, I literally, I literally just played the, the song like a couple minutes ago. So I just had that, you know, we've got to stop. <laughs> Sorry for yes. forcing a reference on you. But, um, <laughs> and you, you know, I guess, okay, this is the last thing I want to say about this thing, but I, I just, feel like, you know, it's assumed that Western culture is the center for everything, you know, for people's, the what art they like, what music they listen to, what they, you know, their values, everything like that. There's nothing wrong with somebody saying, no, blackness is going to be where I find my center and actually doing that as a choice because the thing about western culture is that it's been imposed on most people you know what i mean so it's like yeah. okay whatever yeah. we surrender but like to make the choice of like i'm choose to make blackness the center of my you know um just the center of my world you know th that should not be wrong as long as it's done in the right way do you know what i mean yes yes so, yes. so I just wanted to wow, ask you. Wow, we've really gone around the world. We have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to get some songs from you. I just wanted to just ask you um, what – I'm going to tell you like a situation, and I just want to know what Tina song you would play. So I, okay. I, what Tina song do you think – so just really whatever comes to the top of your mind. But what Tina song just instantly gives you the, the most sense of joy? 365. Oh wow, that's a great one. It's just it's that is it's just so in the pocket. It just you just you know you just put it on and it just you just smile and you just groove into it. It's Jill Jones on that song. I believe oh, that's Jill and Mickey. I believe that's Jill Jones and Mickey Boyce on background. Okay, on okay, okay. But you were talking about driving. You said you were driving. I could just every time I hear that song, I think about times I have just been driving with the windows down. And Summer Breeze, you know, is just that kind of song. Yeah, that's Mickey, yeah. Tina, and Jill on background. Okay, okay. Um, if, you're, if you just want to cut up on the dance floor, like it's been a hard week, and you just want to get all your life out on the dance, dance it out, dance out all the stress, whatever, what song would you play? Behind the Groove, the Rick James mix. Oh, interesting choice. So I and that was never I don't think that was not out at the time right that was no it was in the it was okay okay because I think I like the Eminem mix 
I have, I, don't, I have, but I haven't listened to the Rick James. So why did they even have him remix it and not release? Like, <laughs> Motown. So I don't. Weird. Well, and you rem- there was a whole thing because they actually, when they did a reprinting of Lady T record, you know, I guess after the first printing sold, they used a different mix the second time, and it still wasn't the Rick James mix. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would love. I would really love to read a whole article just about that whole. Um, I, I mean, I, I just that whole album and like just Rick Rudolph's approach to it, and like after losing, you know, because that was after many a past, right? That was. Yeah. Well, it I, it had to have been along the same time because when she was, they were uh, yeah. It because the the back cover has her um, date of birth and date of death is July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine, and this album came out at the towards the end of 79. So I would assume they yeah. were making it while I just she would, was I still... Just would, yeah, I just really would want to know, like, what... I just, I just think there's so much depth. I, I don't listen... That's probably... Other than Star Child, that's probably one of my least played albums of hers, but I just think same, that the behind-the-scenes stories of it are just fascinating because it's the whole thing about him going through... You know, whatever's going on at home, raising two kids, his wife's battling cancer. She's moving away from Rick, but yet not quite ready enough to completely stand out on her own. Like, I, I would love to ask her, like, is, was that your decision? Was it, did the label say, hey, maybe you need to work with somebody else? But yet she had at least enough um, sort of sense of an understanding that if she had continued to be produced by Rick James, that she was going to end up as a Rick James artist and never really be able to break right. out of that. So it just seems – I'm sure Suzanne DePass would know the whole <laughs> – she probably could tell you everything. But um, that story that just the, the, makes it very int- – makes the album very interesting to me, even though, like I said, I don't necessarily play it that much. Well, yeah, because you get things on that record you don't ever get again on from Tina. Like you don't ever get a, a Lonely Desire again. You don't ever mm-hmm. really get a why did I fall in love with you again or a younger – well, sort of young girl in love you do with like Cradle Rob. I see there's like a relationship yeah. between those two in a sense. But it's a very unique album for her because you can definitely hear what Dick Rudolph brought to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Young Love in your um, piece because that was just such an important song to me when I was a little bit like, – like I, I'm pretty sure – was that the first single off of I Need Your Love no, I need your love. I don't remember. I mean, I'll put irons in your irons in the fire. Yeah, but anyway, I, I you know what I think it is? I think Young Love might have been the B side. Whatever okay. the case is, I had both the album and the forty five, but I played the forty five a lot, and I loved the song so much. But you know, it was one of those songs that I misheard the lyrics for like the first. I don't know, 10, 12 years. <laughs> but I misheard them in such a perfect way that we do when we try, as when we're, you know, trying to make cognitive sense of something, but we don't have the knowledge to. So I always thought it was young love, why you want to go away now? <laughs> you know, oh, that's that's a, still kind of work. But but that made sense to me as a kid because I could understand a young love going away. I couldn't really relate to a young love going old. Now I know exactly what she meant by saying that, but um, it didn't – so that's just always a funny song because it's so special to me. But, like, I would have been one of those people, like, loud and singing the wrong lyrics in concert. Okay, so what's your go-to Tina joint for the bedroom? 
And I don't mean making up the oh. bed. Oh, climb the walls. <laughs> climb the walls. Okay. For blast, pa- past the blade. De- okay, past definitely. Uh, what about heartbreak? Like, what's the one that gives you feeling heartbroken about something? You know, not necessarily even romantic, but you're just, you know, whatever, that this is a song that's going to oh, either. Oh, tomorrow. Okay. And why is it that, why was tune in tomorrow? I don't need no TV because I got enough to grieve until tomorrow. I mean, the whole, <laughs> hate. the you know, you know, the line between love and hate. I mean, it's just to me that is like the torch song to end all torch yes. songs. Now, then, yeah, um, song I'm sorry. I go ahead. I really, no, I was going to say that's the song I feel like I really understood her when I was listening to Irons in the Fire that first time. It was Tune In Tomorrow that just, like, completely took me apart. Mm. I will going to play that again. I haven't played that in a minute. I'm going to play that as soon as we stop talking. Um, now, if you're just us, you're just like, oh, my gosh, the troubles of the world, you know, the insurrection, the this and that. Like, <laughs> what song can you play? About oh, Recycle Hate to Love. Okay. And why, what, what, for people that don't know it, say like a little bit about why you would, why, what's so special about that song? Well, I love that she's really kind of prophesying at that point because it's 2004 and things were bad, but they weren't like this. (laughs) And so there's, (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of prophecy in it about, you know, warning us about if we do not start recognizing, um, love and seeing each other and appreciating culture, uh, the differences in culture amongst all of us, that destruction is coming. And that's what I really, you know, I feel like it's such a warning and I feel like that's really her, um, her heartbeat. Cause it's also like the red zone from ivory. Yeah. Or what about, I was, I'm thinking revolution immediately came to my mind too, you know, that she's always oh, singing about yeah. Social issues of social because revolution, yeah, it used to be my jam. Um, yes, another song where the pronunciation is the only reason why the song works. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. If it was, if you, if the pronunciation was just like straight and standard, the whole song would fall apart. Um, yes. Now, okay, when you're communing with God, the perfect feeling. Okay. From beautiful and well, black rain, but beautiful. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just any you, for people that haven't heard when a is that one of the ones it where it's the same version on both albums? It is. I, I think the mix okay. is different because I noticed the sitar a lot more than I did on Black Brain. Um, okay. But it is first of all just exquisitely beautiful, but it's haunting, and it's like you are traveling to another realm, like you are just not in the earth realm anymore. Like you have gone to like the seventh realm or something up there. And it's all about, you know, this perfect feeling, the transcendence of it's sexual on one hand, but it's completely about God on the other. Um, And you're never really quite sure what she is talking about, um, whether it's one of the two, but I feel like that's also the point. And so it's, to me, it always transports me. It takes me out of the space I'm in, and I feel just holiness, you know, to wow. use a sanctified term. It's yeah. holy. I mean, that's just a holy song. It's wonderful. I'm glad I pushed you to – I'm glad I asked that question because I felt like I was being intrusive, but I'm glad you chose a wonderful answer. 
Um, <laughs> okay. Now, I hate these type of questions, but they have to be asked. Okay. Like yes. desert island is your If you had to just live with one. Oh, God. Um, I'm going to say, and it could change tomorrow, but as of this moment, of it's robbery. Robbery. Wow, that is unexpected. Now, you have to tell me why. Because of all those damn ballads. Because yeah. of Dear Lover, because of Casanova Brown, because of Stop the World, um, because of freaking shadow boxing. You know, that's so interesting that you say that. Did you perceive that album as a ballad album? Because I love all those songs and all those ballads, but like, maybe again, it's, you know, the age you get something, but. Like, that's kind of like, that has a lot of my jams on it. You know what I mean? Like, I really yes, love, yes, uh, like, yes. Midnight Magnet and um, Ask Your Mama was, like, my anthem. Like, I oh love that record. Yes. So, it's, it's, so it's funny. I mean, sometimes looking back, especially growing up in D.C. where um, Melvin Lindsay, R.I.P., um, played so much, so much Tina Marie was just a, a part of, like, that's why I know Deja Vu more than, like, me owning the album with Deja Vu on it. I know it because he played it all the time. You know what I mean? Wow. Much more than wow. I would have played it my own. And so it's kind of like the, the Tina Quiet Storm songs that Melvin Lindsay would play form a whole sort of alternative – they have a whole alternative life outside of the albums for me, if that makes some sense. So sometimes totally. I – Totally. have to almost look like what album was that on again just because he um and he would play you know songs back to back by artists and just everything like that so it's like this whole thing that i sometimes get a disconnect from what song was on that what ballad was on that album where i always pretty much know what um you know kind of fast song was on that album yes. so what's your least but we've talked about this a little bit but what is your least paid played this Lady T or what's your least played and not the new ones. I know we've talked about the issues that why some of the new ones we might not have played as much, but of ones that were like, you know, ivory, pre ivory. Probably Lady T. Probably Lady okay. T. I think mine is Star Child. I was mm. just so over her being popular. <laughs> <laughs> it was so sickening to me. Like it was just like not this. And I, you know, I was so into pop music then. Some kinds of pop. I was so into pop music then, mostly from the UK because it was all basically, um, you know, influenced by soul, disco, and um, reggae. And Karen Wheeler was singing on everything. So like that's why I liked. That. Mm -hmm. But you know, but I would buy all the magazines, pop magazines, and like there were even all these things like. They would do a Tina Marie versus Madonna, and like I'm just like anybody okay, who knows I anything can't. about black music would not make that comparison. Like in the same way that you would never compare, like I don't know, like um, I can't think of a good. If some people like, I don't know, just two people that just do completely different things. Like even if taking yeah. out whatever feelings you have about the the um about their music or their talent or anything. It's just they are not anywhere in – they're not even in conversation with each other. You know, it's just such a right. weird, bizarre thing. But, yeah, I was really – I hated Tina's popularity. <laughs> I, I well, and clearly I, she did too. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's why, like, when um, – I think I shared this on Twitter. I don't know if I shared it with you, but I got sent to detention in – must have been, like, 11th or 12th grade um, because I wrote the lyrics to Lips to Find You <laughs> all over my um, desk in English class one. It was just yes. – I mean, my God, you know, like, whatever. I just erased it. But, like, anyway, so – but it was because I was so joyous at Lips to Find You because I felt like Tina was back. You know what I mean? Like, yes. that's such a driving yes. record. And, you know – just her talking, I love Tina just talking her mess and just all that kind of stuff and telling stories and, you know, the 57 Ford or whatever. Like, it just took me away. And I was just, like, so glad to have Tina back. Um, I was about to say black. I guess it was both double <laughs> meeting, but I was so glad well, to have you, her back. Go ahead. I love Emerald City for that reason. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, complete rebellion against the machine. And her, like, saying, I'm going to be even more hard to decipher. Yes. I'm going to talk you my know, code. Yeah. <laughs> create a world. No, yeah. create a world. Yeah, she really, that's the one I think she was most um, sort of like was able, again, we've talked about how Tina will take an influence and then completely switch it. But I think that's her most where she was kind of like, looking at Prince and the way that he imagines like entire worlds, like with around the world today and everything. And I think she was like, you know, I can, I'm going to make me a world, you know, it's going to be Emerald City. I think she's, that probably was her whole interpretation of that, that she probably had not realized even to herself that she had been articulating a very specific worldview throughout all of her music, but she had never just said, this is my place and emerald city was like her um place but yeah like i just like you you so heavy is my song off of that i just oh my god yes that was on my um i i look i made i make playlists on like my top tens on spotify all the time but then when i go back to them like a few years later i'm like why did i have this song and why isn't this there but um you so heavy is on my Tina top 10 from however God many years ago. And I was like, Oh, that's a good one. I'm glad that was, that's on there. With the sparkle and, reference um, in it. Oh my God. Sister can only fly one way. I've forgotten all about that. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Now I have to listen to that again, but yeah, that's probably why I love the song so much. <laughs> because <laughs> obsessed with sparkle. Um, hmm. Thank you for, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, that's deep, too. That's very deep. That's shade. <laughs> if you look at the credits, it says for RJ, and we know there's only one RJ. So. Right. And he was. Or did and you he say was for pre- Rick? I need to double check myself. I have it here. I have my, for Rick. I have my expanded edition in front of me. Let me check. Yeah. Um, because the expanded edition brings me to a song that I, a pop song that I really did like that that was not a hit. I think 14K is a better song oh, than Lover Girl. <laughs> absolutely. Personally. I love going on a treasure hunt. Care to come along? I yes. love 14K. Love it, love it, love it. Because I love the Wizard of Oz theme through her work as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just love that record. I mean, that Goonies soundtrack, it, um, it also had an Arthur Baker cut, Eight Arms, Goon Squad, Eight Arms to Hold You, which was good. So I would I would play that. Right. That was when I was working at a record store. Um at the Wiz in D.C., and I would just play that Goonies soundtrack all the time. Wow. So, yeah, I think we've summed it up. I, that's, I just, yeah, it's been very, very um, fascinating. I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing 
your time, you know, just talking with me, but just also for, um, you know, sharing so much of yourself and your love for um, music because, and for black music particularly, because, I mean, I just think that so few people have done, like, what you did in the Tina piece and how, like, you were – just went right out there and talked about whiteness and talked about white supremacy and just really, I mean, you were right. Like you did that, like she would have loved this and it it, it was stuff that she could have never said. It's stuff that I think a lot of other people have never been able to quite put their finger on and articulate. Mm. And that's the best type of writing that makes it from something that's just like some album review or something like that. But, but, um, and I talked, talked to Ann Powers about this, but like, to give people a frame of a frame to think or think in some way or to think differently about stuff that they love and know in their heart and their spirit, but they just don't have the words for it. I feel like as a writer, that's the responsibility because otherwise you're just like almost transcribing. You know what I mean? You're almost like just absolutely. You, you can put together your research, you can do everything like that, but if it's not coming from the soul, if you're not trying to just in the way that songs songs make our own feelings make sense to us. Do you know what I mean? Like totally, totally. we don't know what we're feeling, but we know oh, but Tina knew what I was feeling and she's singing it right there. You know, I think that's what um you know, this Tina Marie piece has done for me, but it's done your work has done um that for me so many times. Like just um wow. reading so it's just because you know, I came up and like the music that I loved was not music that was written about. And that was just an assumption. I mean, that's just yes. was the way it is. Yes. And I had to learn. I just had to live with that. And then when I got sort of old enough to be able to do something about it and got enough, you know, sort of the intellectual writing craft in order to take it on, then I decided to personally do something about it. But so, but it's almost like a wound and a hole there. Yes. There's, there is yes. a sense of feeling like maybe, you know, for as much as I knew it wasn't, there is a feeling like, well, maybe this stuff wasn't that important. Maybe it was marginal. Maybe you did really did like this song um, more than other people. But when you um, wrote just about Fall Down and just um, what that song meant to me when it came out, what that 12-inch meant to me, what like that meant to so many black gay men at the time to have this record that was so gospel-y. And, you know, obviously coming from her, like, you know, the, Tremaine and just everything yeah. like that, but just to have it work so well on the dance floor, like that somebody gave something to us at a time when it seemed like so much stuff was being stripped away, and then yeah. to have you actually like give care to talking about that record that means so much, it just it's 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 it is healing to me. It is um wow. just it's like validating things in my life like not, not necessarily that I was sitting there waiting for validation but just it's just nice to know you know this is like it's, it's nice to know you're it's confirmation like it, in many ways yeah it is it is it is and you know the other sad thing about that that, that I think about it, another reason why um I think when you wrote about fall down was so important um is because I think most of the people that I listened to that record with and that turned me on to that record are no longer here Wow. So there's wow. a whole sense of history that I hold because I kind of was through that whole AIDS era, you know, 
and lost yeah. so many people in that that um sometimes I feel like I'm the only like um my my favorite um probably my favorite gospel singer sister Lucille Pope and you know um mm. and she, if somebody's gone she goes you know just seems like there's no one around talk to yes. when you want to talk about the Lord, you know, but it's what you, the larger sense of that is like there, Joan Rivers says something like that in um, the documentary piece of, is it called piece of work or piece of art, piece of something, but anyway, work, in Joan Rivers, people were okay, but she says something like, um, I just want to be able to say to somebody, do you remember what happened at such and such's party in 19, blah, 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 and she said, and everybody that I could say that to is dead. You know, I'm yeah. paraphrasing, but she said something to that effect. And that, you know, that's something that comes with age, but it's also something that like people like me and so many other people that lived through that era had to kind of experience early on. And so like just yeah. reading such a in-depth thing on, on just such a special song, you know, like I said, it just, it just meant so much to me. So I just wanted to say thank you for that before I start like, start, like breaking down. <laughs> Well, I, and I want to thank you because, I mean, you've been an inspiration to me, and you have, and particularly with the Luther story, like you told a story people didn't necessarily, in the way that you, the truths that you told, a lot of people didn't necessarily want to hear that or know that, and mm-hmm. you knew that it needed to be done. And to me, that's what this work is really all about. We have to be able to... um permeate the consciousness and help people hear the truths that maybe they are afraid to hear or resistant to hearing. That's the real work. Anybody can write a halfway decent biography, but to tell compelling stories and to say the hard things is a whole nother kind of um, calling. And I mean, you do it so well and you're, you're an inspiration to many so I'm grateful for what you do. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the criticisms that I got from Luther, especially around, is like people were, and you probably know this from talking to me. I mean, I can go on a tangent, but like when I was <laughs> writing Luther, some people were like, well, why is he talking about all these other people, all these other people? And it was like, look, there aren't that many books out here about black music. If I have a That's chance right. to put on the I'm going to give you, two paragraphs on Shaka Khan. I'm sorry. You're just going to deal right. with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm going to give you like a little bit of a backstory about Sissy Houston because Sissy Houston is everything to me. So you're just going to have to like <laughs> just chill. If you only want to read about here and now, just get to the – but you're going to hear me talk about Sissy Houston, you know? Well, and that's so – I mean, and to me, like I was grateful for those kinds of things in the book in particular because many of those people don't get – that kind of attention or mentions and they were so vital to not just his work but to that whole era to and rock and roll don't even, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean what would and rock and roll have been without what, what, what would rock and roll be without like sissy houston and um darling love like what where yeah. would we <laughs> yeah and um you know um mary clayton and it's just it's just really incredible, you know. So yeah, I but yes. I, it, you know that's definitely what I've always been into. Well, I've always loved background singers. Like I've always like had an right. eye on the um, 
background secrets, you know. But um, probably my favorite is Brenda White King. But yes, <laughs> I just, yes, I, yes. Every anytime she was on stage with Luther, I was just I I mean he literally like I would not be I just love I just love her. She just had such a regal presence, and she just had such that deep tone and just everything. Like I just I could just literally. I was glad I never was like. Um, had to film a Luther concert or something. Just, you know, wow. Like, <laughs> closer shots of Bruce White King. But um, well, why was I saying that? I, I was saying that to say, oh, so that's why. So the people, the story of people behind this have always, has always been important to me. And I was like, if this is my Luther book, you're going. And also the, the thing about it too is that, that I think a lot of writers get wrong is that people only ever remember stories. Like you can, I can say, Sissy Houston was born, blah, 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 and she sang on this and then that. That's, nobody's going to remember that. They only remember things in the context of stories. They remember that, oh, Sissy right. brought um, Whitney down to Shaka Khan's session for Our Love's in Danger, and Luther told Whitney that, oh, you're going to be one of the biggest singers in the world. And that's memorable. You know, yeah. saying, Sissy and Whitney also sang on Shaka Khan's, that's not memorable. And so many writers don't no. get that. You know, well, and and when you said background singers, I remembered something I wanted to say in our talk about Tina that I feel like we should say if we're talking about background singers. Tina's first placement as a songwriter was on Tata Vega's first solo record. Wow, I'm giving like that wee day from the wire gift right now. <laughs> that is wow, and how I can be strong just as long as there's you loving me. And I mean, how much of a like a world we'll have to do like a whole nother. I mean, just how much like, of a world does that open up thinking about the connection between Tata Vega and Tina Marie in terms of right. culture and stuff. And just um, yes. that's amazing. That'll yes. have to be another. You sure that'll have we to be must. either another conversation or something you write about or something, because um, we must do a amazing. conversation about Tata, you and I, we must. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't know, mean to I, go off on my own tangent. No, that's fine. That's fine. You're, you're your guest. You're allowed to make demands. You, know? um, <laughs> you, you didn't send a, a rider in advance, so I'm not like it's not like preparing you <laughs> blue M&Ms or anything. But you know, I was not turned. What was the group? The group is like Earth something. The group that she was Earth in. Earth Choir. Earth Choir. Earth Choir. Okay, so I'm I had those records, but I'm not. I haven't gone deep, 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 deep into them. So I need to get kind of tot it up <laughs> oh yeah earth choir and earth choir and pollution i mean okay i love tata's solo work so don't hear me wrong but earth choir and pollution are some of my favorite tata recordings she she was you know 17 18 when she did pollution and so she was just singing like just singing wow. just you know because she was a kid just out of the you know just getting to california and she was just singing it down, whistle notes, the whole thing. Well, hold on. Pollution is the name of the – Pollution is the album or the Pollution is the – That's the band. It was her and Dobie Gray. I don't know I had that. Okay. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, I'll send you Pollution. I will send you Pollution. Dobie, Dobie Gray – we're all off. Wow. Yes. Dobie Gray discovered her. Oh, interesting. They were, they were in hair together. And uh, Dobie Gray said, hey, I'm in a band, and I think you'd be perfect for it. And they were managed by, um, oh, God, name leaves me, from Beverly Hillbillies. 
Um, oh, right, because Tita was on, but Tita was on Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> that was her first TV appearance. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, we yeah. are going way. <laughs> people are playing. We're all around the world. Let's tell people who Tata is that they, everybody knows her voice. She's the voice of Suge Avery in the original Color Purple movie. So just so people yeah. know, <laughs> that's some yeah. reference. Motown recording artist from, you know, yes. uh, really from Give it up for love. Yeah, to to 1980. Uh, Give it up for love. Just keep thinking about you, babe. Um, and the Shaka Khan cover because she covered uh, "Keep It Coming" by Ashford and Simpson. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, great we'll record. definitely have to. But it, it's you know, it's just interesting. That's another person that kind of like moved fluidly within cultures, but found barriers once she got to the point of like having to have it's just that kind of like main you know where people when they needed to put her in categories or something she just yes. didn't because she didn't fit and then she just kind of um so many people of that era like that like kind of like i think of sort of phoebe snow is kind of that adjacent oh, you know kind of like a person without a home and there are a lot there's yes. just a lot of people that were kind of like that so um yeah that's interesting but before we go tell everybody what you want them to stream, what you want them to subscribe to, what you want them to buy, <laughs> whatever you have well, you you can, people to know you about. You can find I well, and there's nothing to buy. You can come to God's Music is My Life. and just subscribe. It's a free biweekly newsletter. There's usually one feature a month, and then a few miscellaneous things. The second newsletter. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Tim Dillinger, like the gangster, uh, D-I-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. I'm easy to find. And like, just so um, I always ask people this, and I might even cut this in the beginning, but like, how would you introduce yourself? Like what, cause so many, you know, I never, I never care about what everybody says about me during intro, but it's always just kind of like interesting. I'm almost more curious to see like what, other people are kind of um, what they are prioritizing that I've done, you know, so it's kind of, a, <laughs> just, you know, one of those things, but I'm just interesting. How would you introduce yourself? I would say that I am a essayist and historian, um, sometimes singer songwriter um, and uh, animal lover. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, this is a good thing. Speaking of which, I think, um, my dog is probably hungry, so I probably need to wrap up. Yes. But, Tim, this has been, like, yes. one of the best conversations about music I've ever had. It's been one of the best interviews that wow. I've ever done. And I really thank you so much. Um, again, like I said, I've read the piece many times. You know, it's a it's a printed out. You have your own file. You already did with the Tremaine piece. But now there's a number of things in the file. I think the New York wow. Community Choir is in there, too. So it's, like, things that I just know that – to me, the internet just seems more ephemeral in a lot of ways than yes. actual paper. I need something that I can put my hands on. So if I same, love a writer, I ha I have it printed out. I have, so you have your own file, your own designated, you know, and I really, um, you really give me a lot of inspiration and a lot of just, um, you know, hope for like what people can do with music with writing about music in the future you know sometimes it can seem so stale and like you're reading the same type of things yeah. structured in the same way the same type of people writing about music whatever type of music it is but it's just so um great and heroic and everything like that to like put yourself out there and 
you know, I've already seen like on Twitter and stuff, I know you're getting some of the love back um, and, you know, yeah. that people clearly, I can even tell in the tweets that people clearly got exactly what you were trying to communicate. And to me, at, if I have not, if I can only, if like I'm on, because I've written on, for newspapers like on super deadlines, like in everything like that. And if I can't think about anything else, I'll think about like, what is my intention for the piece? What do I want people to feel? And then I just mm. have to let go and just whatever comes after that is what it is. But I think you know what you said that your intention of was for the for the Tina piece. Uh, I think people are getting that exactly. So I, I just want to say congratulations. So I want to say thanks, Thank and you. I will see you and talk to you soon on Twitter. And hopefully we can um, we will meet and have a conversation um, in person sometime soon. I can't wait. Thank you so much, okay. Craig, for everything. Take, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. I certainly had a lot of fun making it. I certainly had a lot of fun speaking with Tim. Um, and thanks for indulging my speed talking. You know, like I said, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying not to say, you know, as much. I'm trying to say, not to say, you know, what I mean and all the other little things that I'd be saying. But, you know, I'm 54 years old this year. So, you know, that whole old dogs, new tricks, whatever. I could, you could learn a new trick. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to remember it. But anyway, um, before I bounce, I just want to say that there are links in the description um, to Tim's articles on Ms. Hawkins and Ms. Marie, along with a playlist of songs that the ones that are digitally available that we discussed during our talk. And for folks who want to hear Passion Play, you can join my archival membership site, Craig's Pop Life Playhouse. Come on in. The interest fee is only $7 a month. Now, look, that is less than one CD or even really a CD single. And you can get a whole year for $50. So it's a bargain, y'all. Anybody, you, you come in, I got the good archives. You can, you know, listen to music, listen to a lot of remixes. You can read a lot of the um, older magazines and stuff that I have. You get the full PDF experience. So, you know, come on in to Craig's Pop Life Playhouse. And, you know, it's basically, it's just Craig's Pop Life Playhouse.com. It's not even a whole lot of Googling or nothing you need to do. So, you know, I'll try to make it easy for y'all. Well, anyway, I just want to say that I love y'all. That I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. Until next time, I'm out. Later. <laughs>